This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Well, I've read the book and loved it. Hum, If You Don't Know the Words by Bianca Murray is set in 1970s South Africa, told through one unique family brought together by tragedy. It's a beautifully rendered look at loss, racism, family, and history. Bianca Murray joins me in studio. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much for having me. Bianca, Congratulations on the success of the book so far. Um, I, reviews everywhere across Canada and the United States. Um, uh, without giving up too much, give us a synopsis of your story. There are two main characters in the story. One is a nine-year-old white girl called Robin, whose parents are murdered on the day of the Soweto uprising. And she gets sent to her irresponsible but wonderful fun aunt, Uh, who unfortunately isn't equipped to take care of her. And the other character is Beauty and Bali, who's a 49-year-old Koza woman who lives in the Bantustan of the Transkei. And on the day of the Soweto uprising, her activist daughter goes missing in the Soweto uprising, and she has to come to Johannesburg to try and find her. And the only way she can stay legally in Johannesburg is to have a passbook, which means she needs to get a job. So she takes over Robin's care in order to stay in Johannesburg and continue looking for her daughter. And it's the, the whole book is the story of their relationship and how these two completely different people come together and form a, a strange family of their own. Uh, like the child in the book, you had a black nanny. Categorize your relationship uh, that with that adult in your life at that time. Yes, when I was born, we had a black maid who came to work for our family, which was the norm in South Africa because South Africa at that time didn't have kindergartens or preschools. And so black women would leave their own children behind in the homelands and they would move to Johannesburg to try and earn an income there by taking care of white children. And our maid was called Eunice. She worked for my family since before I was born and I just absolutely loved her and it was through my love of her that I began to realize how dysfunctional the whole apartheid system was because if you're a child growing up in that kind of systemic racism everything is completely normalized and um, unless you you really care for someone it doesn't occur to you how wrong and how barbaric the system is and Eunice and I are still a huge part of each other's lives she turned 94 a few months ago we still speak on the phone I'm involved in her her grandchildren's lives and we chat on Facebook and on WhatsApp Um, and yeah much of the interaction between Robin and Beauty in the book is based on my interaction with Eunice growing up did you grow up with uh, the white people around you supportive 
of or against apartheid? It's, it's really difficult because the system was so entrenched and people were so brainwashed that virtually the whole society was pro-apartheid, but they would never have classified themselves as racist. So you had ministers giving sermons in church on Saturday, uh, on Sunday, um, using the Bible to justify apartheid. And you had teachers who would speak very casually in a very racist way. And parents and friends, parents, and, and so it went. And yet, the crazy thing about apartheid was people were so generally racist, but when it came to the black people they had in their lives, like their maids and their gardeners, they were very fond of them and thought that they were taking really good care of them. But in general, they saw black people in general as being the enemy. So how, as a small child, did you uh, square those feelings of, of hearing uh, the adult white people around you saying one thing and then having this feeling yourself as a small child? How did you kind of come to terms with apartheid and how wrong it really was? Yeah, it was a huge disconnect for me. Um and I would try and speak to Eunice about it because she would take me to the library, for example, but she was never allowed to come inside the library. And I'd say to her, why don't you come with me and pick books? And she'd go, I'm not allowed to pick books. I'm not allowed to come inside. Uh, she would help me prepare for my school plays and for my ballet recitals. She would help me learn my lines. And on the night of the recital, I'd say, why don't you come and watch me perform? And she'd go, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to watch you perform. And you start to ask the adults in your life, these questions, but you get told that's the way it is. That's just the way it is. That's the way the government's run and it's legal. I mean, apartheid was pretty much legalized white supremacy. That's what it was. Um, and it took me a long time to be able to truly understand it. And I can honestly say that I only started coming to grips with it now in my 40s when I was writing this book. Are you drawing any comparisons to the racial confrontations in the U.S.? It's interesting that your book is coming out at this time. Yeah, it scares me more than what I can say, that a book that takes place more than 40 years ago across the world in South Africa is still so relevant today. These themes should not be relevant today. And yet you just look recently at what happened in Charlottesville. You look at the Black Lives Matter movement. These these themes are more relevant today more than ever. And, and that's what terrifies me um, when you see people being able to go out into public and voice these hideous opinions um, and, and, and share their racism in this way. I've seen where that, where that leads to. I've seen what can happen if you let that get out of hand. Author Bianca Murray is joining us here in studio on Zoomer Radio. Jane, for Libby, and your calls are welcome. If you have any questions of Bianca, not only about becoming a writer, because we're going to speak with her a little bit about that as well, but South Africa in the 70s and 80s, and uh, her finding out more about her experience. If any of this interests you, we'd love to have you call in. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 186 Six six seven forty four seven forty. One of the themes in your book is the question of political violence. So, in the end, the characters generally reject violence. Is that a realistic reflection of how apartheid ended? Well, 
I was trying to show the generational divide. So Beauty, who's much older, is uh, was a part of Nelson Mandela's generation, and so she believed in nonviolence and passive resistance. But her daughter is a younger generation, and that is when the ANC military wing in Kontewesizwe really got a foothold in South Africa, um, when they started to realize that the passive resistance was not working and that one of the only ways to end apartheid would be to make the country ungovernable. And it's unfortunately the case that I firmly believe that apartheid, when it eventually ended, one of the contributing factors was that the country was so ungovernable. Of course, international sanctions helped, and it helped even more that South Africans were not allowed to play rugby in an international arena. If you want to motivate men, take away their favorite sport from them and tell them that they can't be competing. Um, but I think definitely the violence probably did help unfortunately, to end apartheid. Is that something you see happening in the United States in the climate that we have now? I mean, we, we saw it already. Will, yeah. will it ramp up or is there a way for us to have uh, calmer heads or at least in the United States? Under the current government, under the current leadership, I it, it worries me. I don't see how it can possibly happen um, with cooler heads. You know, you need people to be much cooler tempered for these kinds of things to be resolved without violence. And instead, you have a president who's amping things up. And that's very worrying. Let's go to the phones. Sharon in Jackson's Point, you have a comment or question for Bianca? I have a comment, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, in the 1970s, um, I have family that lives in Johannesburg, and most of them have moved away. Um, at the time of the uprising, a cousin of mine came, and I asked him, um, what are you going to do? Because it, it's, it's a difficult situation. Um, how are you going to handle it? What's going to happen? And he said to his houseman, they lived in Lower Houghton in, in uh, Joburg, um, he said, can you, how can you kill us? How can you come and kill us? You've been with us for so long. And he, the houseman said to him, I could never kill you, but I'll go next door and they'll come here. Mm. It was um, absolutely frightening. Um, my, that cousin particularly was a doctor, and he would go into the, um, the black town and, and attend the people there. His practice was strictly the, the black uh, community. And uh, he's, he, they, um, they stayed, their children all left, and now live either in Canada or the U.S. Some of them went to Australia because it was an absolutely terrifying situation. Thank you for your story, Sharon. Thank you. Do you have a comment or reflection on what uh, Sharon was sharing with us? Well, that just mirrored what I was saying earlier about how um, a lot of white people were so completely racist, and yet when it came to their own staff, they could love their own staff. So it it's worked both ways in terms of we, we may not be able to kill you, but we may be able to kill your neighbor. You know, it's interesting. Um, when I was in grade five, so 10 years old, in Nova Scotia, my uh, homeroom teacher at the time uh, was married to a black South African, and he had come to Canada. I can't remember how he got over, but I remember her telling the class about the way life was in South Africa, and that would have been 1975. And I remember just feeling horrified. I don't know that I'd fully learned about slavery and what had happened in the United States as well, but it just seemed almost impossible from a child's point of view 
and that's what's so interesting about your book. So it's it's all written from the child's point of view in varying chapters. You go back and forth between uh, Beauty's point of view and, and Robin's point of view. But it, it just really, out of the mouth of babes, comes the truth and the way that we should live. Completely. And, and, and it's also a way of showing how no child is born racist. Children don't sit in a playground and say, I'm not going to play with this kid because they're black or because they're not white. It's, that's learned behavior. And showing the book from Robin's perspective was a way in which to show the many ways in which she had learned from the society she was a product of how to be prejudiced and, and, and how to be racist. What um, What is South Africa like now? I mean, are you back and forth, or when did you come to Toronto? We arrived in Toronto five years ago, um, and we now live here full-time. But the reason we left South Africa was simply because my husband and I had spent our whole lives in Johannesburg. We'd never had a gap year, and so we'd never lived anywhere else, and we both absolutely love traveling. So we said, let's go to a country we've never been before where we don't know absolutely anybody and let's just make an adventure of it and and that's how we came. But we go back to South Africa every second year. I'm still very much involved with families who live in Soweto, in the townships um, of South Africa. Our entire family still lives in South Africa. So we're still extremely invested in the country. It's not that we left because we had a problem with the government or, or because of the change of regime. Uh, South Africa is its trying really, really hard. Unfortunately, the current leadership, and again, that comes back to what I was saying in the U.S., the leadership of a country makes a huge difference in terms of how things are going in that country. And when we had Nelson Mandela, who really cared about people intrinsically at grassroots level, that is what he cared about, improving people's lives. Um, and, and while he was president, that's what he worked towards. And unfortunately, the current leadership in South Africa is not like that. And so there's still a lot of poverty in South Africa. And as long as poverty continues, uh, crime will continue, violent crime will continue. And I just feel the people of South Africa, all colors, all races, all cultures deserve so much better than what they have. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's talk about your writing. Uh, we have Bianca Murray in studio. She is the author of the hot new book, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words, about South Africa in the 1970s. A fascinating read, an enjoyable read. Uh, I was reading it kind of in a bubble before it officially came out. Um, how did you come to writing? Because as a woman in your 40s, your first book, this Was it a passion that was sort of brewing over a long time? Did you come to it later? Yeah, I was writing since I started reading. I think I wrote my first book when I was six or seven. Uh, It was about fairies in a tree, and I illustrated it myself. I'm pretty sure I ripped it off from Enid Blyton. And then I remember finding it a year later, ripped to shreds in my cousin's play box, uh, toy box, which exposed me very early on to the fact that everyone's a critic of your work. Uh, I, work, I wrote throughout high school. I was very lucky to have an amazing English teacher who encouraged me to write in high school. And I won a few uh, one-act play competitions while I was in school. 
But in South Africa at that time, you couldn't study writing. You couldn't study creative writing. So I did my degree in English, and I've always been writing. Uh, This is the third book I've written, the first one published. Uh, The first two were widely rejected by everybody. And I'm glad they were because they weren't very good. Um, And then when I came to Toronto, I signed up with the University of Toronto's School of Continuing Studies to do their creative writing certificate. And it was the best thing I absolutely could have done. It, It helped me make friends. It helped me meet other creative people. And it helped me learn my craft. And that's when I started writing the book. Uh, are you just naturally a writer? I mean, or is it something that can be learned? There's a lot of dispute about this. So most writing teachers will tell you that it can be learned. I think people are naturally storytellers or they're not. So I think there's that fundamental essence that makes you a storyteller. But definitely learning your craft and learning how best to tell a story, that can definitely be learned. Unfortunately, I can't get to all the calls today. But let's go to Danielle in Mississauga. Go ahead quickly for Bianca. Hi, um, I'm a grade four teacher, and I wanted to know, do you think this is appropriate to be uh, reading to my class? Oh, good question. If you're reading it to your class, there it would definitely be appropriate. There are a few um, instances of strong language, which you could just cut out yourself. But in terms of everything else, it, it would be um, appropriate. I, I would say go through it first, because I'm not quite sure what you know, children can can cope with. There's a bit of violence um, that you may need to temper down. But uh, I actually spoke to children at a school about it, and they were the ones who made the connection themselves between First Nations experience in Canada and what South Africans were going through. So I really think it would be very helpful for them to, to hear the story. Thanks, Danielle. Great question. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay. Thanks, Bianca. I can't believe we're finished already, but it is one minute before one o'clock, so I have to say goodbye. Thank you so much for coming in. All the the best of success for your new book. Thank you so much, Jane. Hum, if you don't know the words, author Bianca Murray. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.